writers are perhaps the original gatherers. You know, I, I've sometimes compared writers to birds. You know, you you get a twig of information here and a branch of backstory from there, and you keep collecting it somewhere deep within you. And then one day you have enough to build a nest out of all those raw ingredients. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the first episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast for 2022. Wow, we made it. I couldn't think of a better way to ring in a new year and the beginning of our second season of the podcast than with my guest today, Thridi Omragar. Let me tell you a little about her. Thridi is the best-selling author of the novels Bombay Time, The Space Between Us, If Today Be Sweet, The Weight of Heaven, the World We Found, The Story Hour, Everybody's Son, and The Secrets Between Us. Her new novel, Honor, was published earlier this week to huge acclaim. She's the author of the memoir, First Darling of the Morning, and of three children's books. They've all been translated into several languages and published in over 15 countries. She is a distinguished university professor of English at Case Western Reserve University here in Cleveland. It is my extreme pleasure to welcome a writer I admire greatly and a voice in literature that I am continuously blown away by. Please, please, please say hello to Thridi Umregar. Welcome, Thridi. Hi, Ron. Thank you for having me. I am so excited that we're getting to do this. I have had the pleasure of reading the book, and I, I can't wait for everybody to get their hands on this one. But let's first tell everybody. I want to. I want to give us share a sample of some of the glowing praise that you've gotten. Rebecca Mackay, who was who was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for The Great Believers, and a, another writer that just we all greatly admire, said, "Honor is a novel of profound depths, cultural, personal, romantic, spiritual." It's also a story of tremendous grace, both in the understanding it shows its characters and in the ways they navigate a brutal but stunning life. That's that's not bad. <laughs> that's not bad at all. Let's start out by having you give us an overview of the book. Sure. So first of all, I'm a great believer in Rebecca Mackay, so mm. I'm, I'm glad you chose that, that quote from her. It means a lot to me. So Honor basically tells the story of two women, both of Indian origin, but as different from one another as one can possibly imagine. Um, Mina is, is a woman, um, you know, she's the daughter and sister of farmers in rural India, functionally illiterate, very, very poor, oppressed. And Mina is young and she does one radical act in her life, which is that she falls in love. And she falls in love uh, with a Muslim guy. She is Hindu. And she follows her heart and marries him. 
And for that one transgression, if you will, uh, in a very puritanical society, she pays an extremely high price. The other woman, uh, major character in the novel is Spita, who is an Indian-American journalist who finds herself in India, a place she has resolved, uh, a country where she left with her family when she was 14 under mysterious uh, circumstances and has vowed never to return to. But professional duty calls and she finds herself back in India covering Mina's story. Basically, the novel from that point on becomes, you know, strangely enough, given the seriousness of the subject matter, we hear two parallel love stories, alike in some ways and very different in others. And the differences, of course, are, as always, mitigated by class differences, you know, educational level differences, uh, opportunity differences, uh, basically privilege in a nutshell. Right, right. And it's a world that you write about so eloquently and so vividly. Um, what, Where did the idea for this particular story come from? You know, I would say two different sources. The more immediate source was a series of articles that I came across several years ago, written by the great journalist, New York Times writer, uh, Ellen Berry, who mm-hmm. was covering South Asia at that time. And she did Uh, some really fantastic journalism on rural India. And a few stories were specifically about the conditions of women in rural India. And uh, I have to confess, I mean, even though I grew up there, you know, lived there for the first 21 years of my life, I was a city kid, you know, and and a person of some degree of privilege. And uh, the world that Barry described, you know, in the 21st century was, uh, was shocking. So that was the immediate inspiration, especially uh, for Mina's character. Smita's character came from a point where, you know, just as somebody who has an interest in India and Indian, you know, current Indian history, I'm just growingly dismayed um, by the treatment of minorities um, in India today, specifically of Muslims. There seems to be a real sort of Hindu fundamentalist rise in popular politics, populist politics, much as we see, you know, the rise of fundamentalist Christianity in this country. And there are, strangely enough, there are strong parallels between the two world's largest democracies and where they're headed. And Smita's character somehow came from just my awareness of this issue So it's not quite as direct a connection as Mina's character was. But Smita was born, I guess, from this muddle of thoughts and feelings uh, that I have about this. Yeah, And one one of the things I love about your writing, and especially this book, is the way that you develop your characters. The character—it's very character-driven in their in their habits and their backgrounds and their backstories. They all merge. How do you approach creating these characters and, and just bringing them to life so fully? I'm not sure that there is an easy answer to these questions about the writing process, and that so much of writing is the subconscious at play. You know, and and the best I can say is that that writers are perhaps the original gatherers. You know, I, I've sometimes said, I've sometimes compared writers to birds. You know, you you get a twig of information here and a branch of 
backstory from there and you keep collecting it somewhere deep within you. And then one day you have enough to build a nest out of all those uh, raw ingredients. And um, I think there's something to that. I think that's the process at work. But one of the things I most certainly do is I do not embark on a writing project until I feel like I really, really have a sense of who my characters are, not just in current narrative time, although that's very important, Mm -hmm. but I need to know their stories. I need to know their histories because it's only by understanding their past that I feel like I can clearly write about their present and perhaps even about what one can imagine uh, their actions will be in the future. Wow, um, that's such a, such a great analogy about the nest. I love that. Never heard that before. So, when you mix this with your journalism background, one of the wonderful ideas that Smita conveys during there is that the reporter needs to remove emotion from the situation when they're writing about things or when they're approaching things. How does that quote and that idea affect you when you're writing about such horrible and horrific things? Is that something that you also have to bring from your journalism background? Actually, thankfully not. I mean, one of the reasons I made the transition from journalism to novel writing is that fiction is a much freer and, frankly, it's a liberating uh, medium compared to journalism. I mean, journalism, you're really governed and bound by the facts themselves, you know, uh, not the truth, because I think literature in some ways does a better job at getting to the heart of things, which is the truth. But certainly you're bound by uh, what other people tell you. Right. You know, there are just some limitations to journalism that one doesn't really have in, in novel writing. In a novel, you can, you can go deeper into the reality, the lived reality of your creations. Um, and that's, that's one of the reasons I've made that journey from journalism to to novel writing in terms of the kind of objectivity if you will that governs uh journalism one doesn't need to conform to that uh you you tell a kind of subjective truth in literature which in some ways is not just more powerful but it might actually be more illuminating for the reader Um, So I don't try and protect myself from going deep into the emotional lives of my characters uh, or even going deep into my own, you know, the emotions that what I'm writing about elicit in me, that that kind of critical distance that one has to keep as a journalist falls by the wayside sometimes uh, when you're writing fiction. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a great thing. And it's it's one of the things I really wanted to kind of delve into a little bit more. So one of the greatest lessons for me, at least these last few years, is that the elevated importance of all of us to read outside of our own experience, outside of our culture, outside of our gender, outside of our life situation. Um, There's so many new voices that are coming out that we've never heard before. And it's so important that we pay attention to them. And I have to, now that I get a chance here publicly, to credit you for doing that because some of your earlier work have really opened my eyes to that and, and the, the very beauty of allowing that into our world. And you've talked about that just a little bit now, but why do you think it's so important for us to read outside of those things in our culture? I don't know. In some ways, it's such an obvious question to ask that that other than sort of talking in cliches, I don't quite know 
how to answer it. I, I, I feel like that's the only way we grow as human beings, right, is to be exposed to things that we have not otherwise encountered in our lives. I mean, I can only say for myself, I mean, as an immigrant who came to to a new country at age 21, uh, how, how mind-blowing and how mind-expanding that experience has been. And, and I just am a great, I mean, I'm an internationalist, I think, to my core. I'm a great believer in largeness, you know, expansiveness. I, I want the human heart to sort of be blown apart by mm-hmm. diverse experiences and encounters and cultural exchanges and, and all those things. To me, those things are oxygen. I mean, they're just a vital, happy way to live. I mean, who, given a choice, wants to live a small, narrow life, right? Correct. And, and for those of us with privilege enough to be able to have those experiences, whether it's through the pages of a book or travel or however, whatever form it may take, you know, talking, going into an ethnic store in the town where you live and not just shopping, but, but actually having a conversation with the people who wait on you. I think these are all ways of, of expanding our, our minds and our hearts and our lives. Yes, that's so true. So true and so well said. Okay, so let's translate over to children's books a little bit. Um, it, it must be hard to go from adult and such harrowing and deep topics to really important topics, but from a child's point of view to expand their horizons. Can you tell us about the difference between writing the two? Yeah, you know, it was harder in some ways to write picture books because the discipline and the rigor of picture books, the only thing is, is, is harder in some ways. You know, a novel, you can ramble a little bit, you can make a detour or two and then come back to your central themes. Um, there's just more wiggle room in some ways. Yeah, a novel is close to 400 pages. Um, you have, you have that room for movement, but a picture book is just a short, finite number of pages. And it's more akin to writing poetry, I think, in terms of the economy of language, in terms of the discipline of making every word on the page count. It's it's a more muscular structure in some ways, I think, because you can't really afford the slightest bit of flap. And, and there's a rhythm to it and there's a poetry to it, uh, which is very, very appealing, but is also sometimes a little hard to do. So it's, it's a joy, it's a joyful, um, transition, but not always an easy one. Right. That, that makes perfect sense too. I, that, I think that's why many people don't veer from their, <laughs> their chosen genre of book. Yeah, except I think you, you scratch the surface of a writer and somewhere within them is a desire to write a great children's book. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope we can look forward to more of those from you because they're Thank just you. so wonderful and they tell such great stories that I think kids haven't um, necessarily been exposed to before, but they're just magical. And I, I know the that my own grandchildren have just loved them. So oh, that's lovely. To you. So talk to us about writing and pubbing during the pandemic. How has it been for you? You know, to be perfectly honest, Ron, not all that different than usual. I mean, <laughs> writers live in a kind of, uh, you know, isolation and, and quarantine when you're working on a book anyway. It's just that it's, 
you know, real in regular times, it's more driven from within. This time, of course, it was like the world pushed us in that direction. But but honestly, I mean, in that sense, my routine did not change all that much. And in fact, there were since there were less distractions, like you know, going out with friends and just all the stuff one normally does. Right. In some ways, it was a very productive time for me in terms of the writing. And and there was also, at least at the beginning, before we all just got totally beaten down and exhausted by the pandemic, there was this real sense of community. You know, there was this real sense of, my God, we have to take care of each other and we have to boost one another's spirits. I mean, I remember starting, I started to just made a resolution to call certain friends who I knew were alone much, much, much more frequently, sometimes even daily, just to check in and make sure everybody was doing just fine, just to keep people's spirits afloat, you know. And and that was a new and wonderful tradition to have started. And to some extent, it still continues, you know. So it's like any other moment of national and international crisis. There is grief, there is hardship. But for those of us who have more or less so far survived it, there is also opportunity for connection. That is so true there. And um, I think for you, social media was was a help, I think, at least for me, it was to be connected to you and see the way that you observe the world around you during all of this. It, it kept reminding me and others that there's beauty everywhere. And even with the hardships and making connections to people are so fun. Did you intentionally do that or were you just? No, I don't think I intentionally did it. And And, you know, just to go back to what you said a second ago about there's beauty everywhere. We all say that. But we all act as if, you know, the beauty is a mountain that simply exists out there. But the fact is, most of us are engaged in the act of creating that beauty mm-hmm. all the time. You know, the beauty out there doesn't just exist on its own. It's it's the byproduct of other people's labor and work. And um, I do think that there was um, a serious recognition of, of how much of our lives you know, are eased by the hard labor of other people. And for the first time that I can remember, um, there was at least for a brief moment of time, there was a kind of national recognition of that, that essential workers truly are essential. And, uh, you know, I just wish, I wish there were parts of what we went through last year that could have lasted and endured, like lessons learned forever, you know. There was something beautiful about reading about places in the world where the pollution lifted and people could see stars for the first time in decades. And fish know? in the canals. In yeah, Venice. all of that, all yes. of that, right? And and um, I just kept, even while we were living through it, I kept thinking, this is all going to go away and we're going to go back with a vengeance, you know, because that's what human beings do. But it would be so nice if even 20% of the population could make real changes in their lives as a result of it. Right. I, I, I think we have a lot of, this is my hope. I don't know if reality is, but through art, through, through writing and through painting and things that some of that's going to be preserved and elevate to um, future generations that this is what we live through and this is what we appreciated about right. it. Right. There's going to be a whole subgenre of pandemic fiction for sure. <laughs> well, you know? There's, there's already coming out into the world. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I might 
add that it's going to be harder for people like me, writers like me, because, you know, I write so much about people going across nations and things like that. And uh, I think my books are going to be frozen in 2018 <laughs> and 2019 for the foreseeable future, because if I set a book in India in, you know, October of 2020, and if it's not a book about the pandemic, I don't know how I'm going to navigate that, you know, slap a mask on every character's face. I mean, I, you right. know, it's, it's really, I mean, I've already begun to encounter it in, in some projects that I'm thinking about. It's like, how do you account for these lost years uh, as, as a fiction writer who writes about, you know, characters moving in and out of different countries? That's right, because it seems impossible that you would just be able to, you know, wash it away like it never happened. Right. Because it happened and people yeah. will remember. They'll right. be like, I can't read that. That doesn't talk about the truth. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I've never asked you this, but what are who are some of the writers and some of the books that you have treasured forever? Like the things that you look at now and, and you have a long history with. Different books for different reasons. A friend of mine put a copy of Salman Rushdie's uh, Midnight's Children in my hand two weeks before I left India in the early 80s. And um, I almost didn't leave <laughs> after I read that book because it just brought the city of Bombay, the city I grew up in, to such glorious life. And, you know, I was all of 21 and always was raised and thought of the city as this polluted, dirty, crowded wretched place, you know, with no sense of its history or its magic. And Rushdie's book uh, forever changed how I look at that city. So yeah, yeah. that was a huge influence. I remember trying repeatedly when I was a teenager to read Virginia Woolf's The Waves and never being able to get past the first 30 pages because the language was so beautiful that it completely overwhelmed me. I mean, to the point where I just couldn't do it. I, I just, it was like a chemical reaction in my body, just hearing those words. And so that book was really, really important in terms of just realizing what language can do, the kind of power. I mean, I think I was finally in grad school when I just said, this is ridiculous and I'm just going to power through this book and, and read it. And then, of course, it was it was possible and easy to do. Um, I remember finishing um, John Steinbeck's East of Eden when I was 15 mm. years old. Um, and, you know, it's a it's a long book. It's not necessarily a complicated book, but it's a long book. But I was young enough that I was still sort of tiptoeing my way into reading real fiction. I mean, just a few years prior to that, I was still reading comics and Mad Magazine. You know? so, uh, so it was a fairly rapid yeah. uh, change. And I remember, you know, I got done with that book in like two days, just read straight through. I was on vacation and just read straight through. And when I got done with that, there was this sense of, oh, my God, um, I'm I'm a reader. I mean, I, I am part of this world. I'm part of this community of readers. And, and to be honest with you, Ron, you know, I grew up in a family of business people. You know, I didn't have that many models of my own in terms of sort of literary communities or artistic communities or theater communities, like whatever community I needed, 
I had to invent it, whether it was in college or at some other place in my life. That's the only way I found those communities, you know. And so that that book, I mean, I'm just telling you about sentimental favorites. I'm Absolutely. not, That's I'm not okay. telling you about, you know, right. great literary merit or anything like that. Although well, it's I the personal it's, connection that it's, I, it's that I love. It's the personal connection, right. And, you know, so many more. And, of course, once I discovered Toni Morrison, and here's a funny, you know, my first job in this country was in Lorain, Ohio, which, of course, is her birthplace. Right. And that's where I read The Bluest Eye, you know, probably in an apartment two miles or less from where she had set the novel. You know, that was my first job as a journalist was at the what used to be the Lorain Journal. And um, there was something about reading Toni Morrison in Toni Morrison's hometown that that made a huge impression on me. And of course, by the time I got to Song of Solomon and you know then Beloved, I was hooked. Of course. Um, so yeah, so that's just a sampler, I guess. That's great. Now, and I, and I totally relate to you because I come from a family of rural farmers, and the same. I had no connection, but and and again, I think Steinbeck was my. <laughs> my drug of entry, <laughs> if yeah, you will. And, and, and it really, for the same age too. And so that, but I had to find my own community after that, like yeah. you did. That's great. Yeah. I yeah. totally relate to that. So how are you going to be able to promote uh, your book, Honor? I know you have some virtual events, but are you doing any in person? I think the jury is out yet. I think I'm mostly going to be relying on the kindness of strangers to, to read the book. And if they like it, spread word. I mean, it's going to be tough, right? I mean, I do have a bunch of events, which any any day now, I hope to be able to update my website and post them all on there. Um, it'll be done by the time this airs in January, I hope. Right. But it's going to be an uphill battle for me and for other writers who have books coming out. I mean, none of us thought that we would be more or less in the same place. I do have, for now, one local live event, which is the Cuyahoga County uh, Library mm-hmm. event. But we are going to have to wait and see if that will also have to be changed to virtual or not. We don't know. Right. right. It may have to be from yeah. what I'm hearing. So yeah. I think writers that I've talked to before, they, they always have, just before a book comes out, they always have things that they hope the readers are going to get out of the books or that they'll be able to understand or, or uh, know once they've read the book. Do you have some of those for honor? I think the most important thing, here's the pitfall of writing a difficult book like Honor. Mm-hmm. It's very easy for somebody, a Western reader of some privilege, an American reader, to read about the treatment of women in a place like India and to sort of look down their nose or kind of cross themselves and say, oh, my God, we are so lucky in this country. Thank God we are not living in that kind of a you know, barbaric environment, right? I mean, I've actually had at, at book readings, not often, not often, but on occasion, I have had people in the audience sort of ask me questions along those lines. You know, why is India such an awful place? Why do people, why are they so mean to one another? And and it always, I never know how to respond to that because that is so not the takeaway that I want. You know, and right. I can control that, of course. I mean, people are free to read books and get out of them what they wish. But, you know, as a writer, as somebody who believes in communication, who wants to act as a kind of ambassador, if you will, 
bridging, you know, helping people understand different cultures. My hope is exactly the opposite. My hope is what I did when I read Steinbeck or Hemingway or Faulkner when I was 13, 14, 15, 16 years old in India was to draw parallels and draw connections from those books to help understand Indian society better. And and that is the ultimate. I mean, that's the ultimate hope that I would have is that somebody can read about the treatment in of women in India and say, hey, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. What are the blind spots? What are the sort of bigotries and prejudices that we harbor? You know, you can change people's races, you can change people's religions, but what are the fundamental issues that we have in common, right? And then if you really want to get carried away, you know, then as responsible citizens, what role do we play in basically doing less harm to the most vulnerable in every society? Right. That's so perfectly said. And it was, I had underlined one of the lines in the book that says, we all have our cultural blind spots. And I think you just, you just described that perfectly. But I, I, just like you, I always think we have to lift it up to look at it from a more global perspective because these issues aren't inherent in one place or another. They really are universal. I mean, the treatment of women, the treatment of minorities, immigrants, it's its just all, it's very global. And, and this story can help elevate us to kind of examine our own. It's so important. And that's the importance of these kind of amazing books. Thank you so much for joining me today, Thridi. It's been such a wonderful conversation. I know the book is going to really reach people's hearts and it's going to help them look at the world a little bit differently and uh, hopefully examine themselves some too. It's really a brilliant work. So congratulations on the publication of it. And I know that we have more to come from you. Thank you so very much, my friend. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. And it's, as always, it's been too long and it's lovely to see you again. Same here, same here. And thank you all for joining us today. Wasn't that just the best? We are so glad you join us each Friday for every new episode. We have quite a lineup headed your way in 2022, so stay tuned. If you're enjoying listening to these, please rate, review, and share. And most importantly, please tell a friend. Remember, you can always find all the books by every Friends and Fiction Writer's Block podcast guest, past and present, in the friendsandfictionbookshop.org shop. All sales placed there help to fund Friends and Fiction, and a portion of each and every sale goes straight into the pockets of indie booksellers nationwide. Since its inception, bookshop.org has raised more than $16 million for indie bookstores. Shop small, shop local, from the convenience of your screen with bookshop.org, and tell them Friends and Fiction sent you. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.